y'all this is erica from curator love reaching you once more first and foremost i owe y'all an explanation this girl went to mexico for about a month and this is why my podcast was kind of on pause now i'll explain as part of my phd work i went to mexico to visit the guillermo gomez peña archive currently hosted at arqueya in Muac. Now, this is the Museo Universitario de Arte Contemporáneo as part of UNAM. Giant shout out to the people who helped me do archival work when I was there because sweetest humans on the planet. And also, gracias for letting me come back home. Now, I do think of Muac as my home because I've worked there before. But of course, one cannot just go to Mexico and do archival research and come back because how fun would that be? I ended up in Xochimilco, I spent a couple of weeks in the EFE, I went to visit my compadre Federico Cuatlacuatl in Cholula, massive shout out to Fede because he's one of my favorite artists on the planet, and then I went to Guadalajara because I'm from Guadalajara and I was missing home. Now, I don't know if this happens to anyone, and I'm guessing it does. Because it happens to me and I cannot be the only snowflake on the planet. But I get homesick, y'all, all the time. Now, during the pandemic, I purposefully decided to stay away from Mexico. Because it was heartbreaking that when we went on lockdown, everyone decided to take COVID back home. And yeah, I saw all of your IG stories. Everyone was like, ooh, Tulum this and ooh, Acapulco that. I am so glad that you all leaned into your privilege. I am not judging at all. But also, y'all got vaccinated, went to Mexico where people weren't unvaccinated and needed your tourist money. I get that that's important for the economy of Mexico. It also broke my heart to see my people servicing the tourist industry without vaccines in fear So I made the decision to not go home during the entire pandemic. And this was the first time since COVID that I went back home. And I was yearning for home. I was yearning for that bit of happiness that you only get in your home country where everyone looks like you and everyone thinks like you and the food just makes sense and nothing is scary and i don't mean to say that things are scary in the united states but when i'm in mexico it's completely different right and i travel with my arco madre lidia espinosa shout out to her for putting up with my crazy ass agenda and especially For being a trooper with all the things I absolutely needed to eat while I was home. Because there's so much stuff that you cannot find in the United States that I lean into when I get home, right? Like, please someone tell me where they sell machetes in in California. I will drive to San Francisco or Sacramento or something if they have a machete in Sacramento and San Francisco. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, mm mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. If they have... Some aguachiles tatemados. I'm there. Actually, someone, if y'all know how to make them and bite me, I will bring whatever you want me to bring. Hell, teach me to make these things, right? But I was yearning that happiness that one only gets from home. 
And that sense of belonging and talking to my people in my language. And mindfully, I'm a tourist when I get back home. And I have a super pocho accent and zero pochophobia here. If y'all need to call me a pocha when I'm at home, I'm fine with it because it means something different to me than to you. And I don't think it's an insult. And if you need to call me out for being Americanized when I'm in Mexico, that's fine. I've lived here for way too long. Se me sale a veces. Se me sale lo pocha. Se me sale lo gringa. Se me sale whatever you want to call me. It probably busts out whenever I'm trying to do something in Mexico. And I can't think of words. And I'm okay. That's my life. Zero shame in this game. I went back home, y'all. And at home, I took a minute to recharge. I got a limpia, right? You know, my chakras needed to be realigned. I got a blessing. Actually, I got a bunch of blessings. I will I will tell you that some of the most beautiful moments that happen at home to me happen when I'm least expecting it. But, right, me and my comadre over there were shopping. And as she was trying on clothing, the lady that was helping us gave me a bendición. And I cannot tell you how happy that made me. Because this was... This was very unique, actually. The lady, right, asked me rightfully, so where are you ladies from? And I was like, well, I'm from here, but I live in L.A. Started telling her my life story because what else am I going to do while someone's trying out clothing? And at the end, she was so proud of the fact that I live my life the way I live it that she couldn't help herself but to give me a blessing so that my life would be grand upon return. And she thanked me and she was so excited about my career. And I was like, damn, lady, like you're making my day. Right. But these are things these are things that only happen to me at home. Like I don't get any blessings when I'm in the U.S. People aren't that kind. But when I'm at home and I'm telling people about my life, they're just like, mija, you deserve a bendición because that thing you do is that's a lot. And like, thank you for doing that. But also if there's right like there's not a lot that a stranger can gift me and help in this life path but here's this señora being like mija bless you and i was like fuck like that's awesome also i'm honored also thank you but also it just kind of put my life into a really intriguing perspective because it wasn't the only time that it happened. I was meeting a lot of different people and I was having conversations with a lot of different people because yo comadre un chingo. Like, let's be honest. I had a 20-minute conversation yesterday with my mailman and that's just who I am. That's how I grew up, right? I grew up in Mexico knowing every single one of my neighbors. I grew up knowing that I had to take some soup to the lady next door whenever she got a cold. I got, I knew about the jobs of all of my friends' parents. I knew how to support my neighborhood. I knew when we all had to, like, you know, get money and figure out how to fundraise for someone who was in the hospital. Like, that is just normal to me. That's that's something I miss about home, right? Because... Even though the socials give us that nowadays, we don't really have that in the United States. You don't know your, all your neighbors unless you've lived there forever, which may or may not happen because all of us move a lot. Also, there's different customs for different people, right? I, I live in an environment in which is predominantly Asian and white, and 
I only hear Spanish, and I'm pretty sure you've heard me say this before, when the maintenance team is around. And I have made friends with them because, first and foremost, I miss speaking Spanish. But also, they're my people. So, all of this to say that I had a great time in Mexico. I took a little too many meetings, but such is the life of a workaholic. And there are some really cool projects coming up that I will tell you all about in the future months as I'm working on them and they're coming up. But for the better part, my soul is completely replenished and my chi is to the max and my energy is on the positive spectrum and however you want to call it. I went home and I did that for myself and I'm back and I miss it. Now, this always happens to me. Whenever I'm packing to come back, I get all like not in my throat. I start crying for no good reason. And this happened to me this past time too, right? Oddly enough, while I was listening to a Moana song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. My little sister must be proud. Yes. I'm not a Disney fan. Don't judge me. But my baby sister is. But I do like Moana. In any case, I was listening to that song, We Know Our Way, and like tears as I'm packing. Mindfully, it was because I was packing to leave my home. And regardless of how long I am there or how often I visit, I always think I should stay. Some part of me always tells me that I should never leave home. And I know fully, I am fully aware of the fact that I have a life in the United States. I have a business. I have a partner. I have a family. I have love in the United States. But some portion of me at the end of every trip is still like, sweet, par- sweet Pete, like, forget about it. Call it a day. Don't pack. Settle. This is where you belong. And it's heartbreaking, which is why I was bawling when I was packing, just like every single time I pack when I leave Mexico. That's just my life. I know it. I embrace it. I actually set aside some time to do it. I'm one of those late minute packers. I pack like five minutes before I get in the airport. Mm-hmm. And I know that that will happen to me. So I give myself a couple of hours to just, you know, be all in my fields and allow it. Because if that is what's going to get me through, you know, LAX and customs, so be it. But enough about what I did when I was away. Let's talk about the art world again. And mindfully, while I was away, I visited a ton of museums. I visited um, art spaces, galleries, studios artists outside of their studios who were talking to me about art spaces all of that i did all of that when i went home because i love my job oh also as soon as i got back i went to a studio visit (laughs) yeah also no COVID here i test regularly i didn't bring anything to anyone and i didn't take anything to anyone either but the point i'm making is that the art world is such a part of my daily life that I couldn't picture myself traveling without it or to it or towards it. And I'm always really jazzed about the projects that some of these artists have going. And I, I feel honored that they'll share with me these things. Um, for instance, right? And also, this is happening to me a lot as of late because I'm meeting some great individuals in the planet. Zoom has made it so that now I make friends 
before I meet them, which is terrifying and amazing. But that's my life. Um, while I was gone, I held a couple of Zoom meetings. And when I got here, I held some more because Zoom has become life. And here I am talking to this individual about their work, right? We're DMing back and forth as I'm on my trip. We're from the same um, city back home. So logically, we have a lot to talk about, especially as I'm posting on my socials that I am home. And his reaction to me being home and my reaction to his work ultimately ends up with him showing me his personal journals, right? And him prefacing that he doesn't do this with anyone. Massive shout out to Luis Alvaro Sagun because you made my life. Um, He's this amazing artist uh, that you all should meet. Google him, find his artwork. It's my understanding that he's coming in the next couple of months to a group show at Charlie James Gallery. Shout out to Ever for putting together epic group shows. But the point I'm making is that I am able to connect to people on multiple different levels. And it's it's generating this, not just all of this great energy for me, but it also humbles me, right? Here's an individual that I've never met in the physical realm who I can connect to at such an important and interesting and intimate level that he feels comfort in showing me some very intimate part of his practice. So to me, right, like I I hold that with the most respect and I, I put that with the utmost importance in, in my day, right? As a curator, I'm used to having artists show me way more than they show the general populace. Actually, artists are really good about putting artwork together that they'll show curators before it's completely finished to ask questions about how to complete it whenever they bump into issues. I'm not saying this is everyone, right? And I'm not saying um, curators finalize work by any means. But, right, if an artist is stuck thinking through something and a curator stumbles upon the work then we're educated enough to be able to lead this in some direction. And this isn't what's happening here at all. I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy, is what I'm going to say, to tell someone what to do. I can offer my opinion. I can, you know, give examples, which is what ends up happening at most of my studio visits. An artist will be like, here's what I'm doing. And I'll be like, oh, you know, this reminds me of so-and-so who's doing this and this. And because, right artists are so generous with me not just louise but a ton of i i have i have the the great fortune of having a lot of people trust me to the point where they'll send me their work in progress mindfully because we're working together or just because you know they're just like hey i'm working on this i thought you should see it and i love those surprises i love that i wake up in the morning and i see for instance One of my favorite artists, and I have a lot of favorite artists. Luis is my favorite artist. Federico is my favorite artist. Francisco Donoso is another one of my favorite artists. But ever so sporadically, I wake up and Francisco's like, hey, I'm working on this. And I'm just like, mind blown. How great is it that I open... Because Francisco's in New York, right? And he starts working way before I wake up. But how amazing is it that I get to wake up and see these magical things being created in the other edge of the country before I'm even cognizant. Art 
it puts me at this really great place in which I start thinking that art is always happening with or without me, but I still get to witness it from afar. And it's this really great revelation each morning where I think, how amazing is it that there's this piece of magic being created somewhere? And I'm right, I'm in that inner circle so much so that I get to witness it. And this isn't even about an inner circle, and this has nothing to do with privilege, although I am extremely privileged that artists will share their work with me. It has more to do with people and right sustainability because aside from the capitalist agendas and labor and food and scarcity and all of the triggers of the planet the people around you are what keep you going and i am outrageously thankful that i have amazing individuals who keep me moving forward so i suppose this episode is more about gratitude than anything else but all episodes are about gratitude. Even when I'm like discussing labor and capitalism, I'm grateful that I can talk about these things. I mean, how awesome is it that I have a platform to just rant about capitalism for, you know, X amount of hours? Not because I have the platform to rant about it, even though that's exactly what I'm doing through this platform, but because y'all engage with me in the conversations that I'm thinking about, right? It's different for artists. Artists have conversations and have objects that you come to look at to discuss something. Curators don't have that. Curators have practices that you don't see. We're not object-based. Our medium is artwork. Our medium is artists. Our painting, our exhibitions, right? Painting, sculpture, you name it. But we don't have the one piece of something that will drag a bunch of people to give us their opinion. I'm, I'm extra lucky that I can talk into the ephemera of the planet through this podcast and various other spaces, right? Like YouTube, um, my Instagram, whatever. Have a conversation in public, museums, galleries. And someone somewhere will react to it and reach me and be all like, hey, this is what your thoughts made me think about. So it's an ongoing conversation that I truly appreciate having with you all. Especially because I don't get to see you all all the time, right? As for instance, a couple of minutes ago, um, one of my girlfriends in the city, who's a super talented sculptor, her name is Sofia Lizarraga, I want to say. I don't know. Her Instagram is Sofia Esther. Don't quote me on this. And I'm not telling you that I don't know her name. To me, she's Sofia, right? And... She's telling me, like, hey, I was listening to your podcast, and, like, I have this thought, and I'm going to do this project because of something you said. Let's discuss it. And here we are going back and forth about, you know, a conversation I had months ago for my podcast that she's reacting to now, and I find that so powerful, right? And again, I'm honored that y'all take me this seriously, first and foremost, but also, How great is it that I get to have a conversation with you even when I'm not in the room? Like, there's a ton of power to that. And it just feeds my soul in the best of ways, which is why I'm extremely grateful. Not just of my job, but of the people around me. Of the people who believe in my practice and of the people who continue to sustain me, aside from all of the other structures that I need to sustain myself. Your community sustains you, right? As a prophet, my students sustain me. 
as a curator artist sustain me. There are a lot of a lot of us in constant contact with each other to kind of push forward and move forward in the planet. And I find that truly beautiful. So just so are all extra levels of clear. I'm not thankful to be in the art world. And I'm not grateful for that. I work my behind off to be where I'm at. What, And, you know, that can be debated. And you can see that however you want. What I'm grateful and thankful for are the people in the art world that make me want to continue to be a part of it. Because art worlds, as far as art worlds go, and I think about this a lot because I travel a lot, change, right? It's different to be an artist in Los Angeles than it is to be an artist in Guadalajara. It's different to be an artist in Cholula than it is to be an artist in Milan. And I am cognizant of this because I'm not an artist. It's different for me to curate a project in Guadalajara than it is for me to curate a project in Tel Aviv than it is to curate a project in Brazil. And I've done these things. So I think about the different enclaves of people within these pockets of the art world that ultimately make up the art world. But I am extremely honored and thankful and excited and you know humbled to be a part of the enclave that I'm a part of because I'm surrounded by these brilliant individuals who are mind-blowing and creating incredible projects left and right and I don't think I say this enough but also when's the last time you did that yeah when's the last time you just thanked someone for their energy or for being a part of your life. Now, I I just finished um, listening to the prior two podcasts on labor, which is what got me thinking about this. We all work extra levels of heart to be a part of the art world. And this isn't to do with whether we need to or not. We work way more than we have to. Let's be honest. I know because... As a profe, I'm on the other edge of that spectrum, right? In academia, you're a student, 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 and then at some point you become the profe. And now I'm on the other side. Like, I'm the one who gets to make the prompt for the final, not take the final. And there's a ton of privilege in that. But I'm also the one who makes the choices. And I typically wait until the last possible moment to give my students the syllabus not because I have to, not because I can, not because I want to, but because I learned under a series of people who gave me their syllabus the day I went out for vacation and it ruined my vacation. I don't want kids to do more homework than they have to. I'm the one who tells my students not to worry about the homework over the weekend. If I can avoid giving them work, If I could not grade them, like, my life would be great. And as much as I understand that, you know, academia is built on grades. If I could just give everyone A's, I would be amazing. I'm not talking about A's for effort. I don't have those students. I teach at an R1. At the moment, I have 20 students 
out of the 20, most of them are honor students who have already graduated. They're not there because they need a star at the end of the day. They're incredibly overachieving, high-thriving individuals who don't need another A. They're there because the knowledge is what matters to them. And I get that I'm extra level of privileged here because not all profs have... These aren't everyone's students, right? And I have students that see me as a teaching assistant and want to take my class after they've graduated. I have students who stick around for a year. So I want to believe, and I want to take that as a compliment, that I'm doing something in some right way. But also I have a policy in which, you know, if I'm not doing something in the right way, they can tell me towards the end of the quarter. I want them to grade me. I don't think the hierarchical structure of academia is what academia should be based on. I think we need to rethink academia. But it's the same for um, my curatorial practice. We need to rethink, not curatorial practices, but we need to rethink a lot of the art world. And I spend a ton of time thinking about this because in different places, it works differently. There's way more collaboration in smaller art spaces than there is in giant museums. There's a ton more collaboration when there's less budget. I know, it's crazy. But when there's less budget, you need to talk to way more people in order to get the thing done that you want to get done. So the structure shifts. Money makes it so that the structure shifts. When a gallery is making a project and at the end there's capitalist gain then there's a shift in labor. And all of these things I'm constantly cognizant of, especially when I speak to my artists, friends, colleagues, family, community, who tell me things like, I didn't, I only slept two hours yesterday. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I get it. We all have these torturous relationships to labor. But also, let's rethink that. Let's rethink how we think of labor. But not in doing, in undoing. How we think of not doing needs to be restructured. Because at no point, you know how like you meet someone and you're like, hey, how's it going? What have you been up to? If someone at that moment said nothing, it would totally break your engagement. Like you'd be like, oh, well, we can't talk about anything then, right? If if the person gave back to you, I did nothing. How do you follow the conversation? And that's just a simple, you know, hello engagement. If you go to an artist studio and they're like, I haven't worked on anything. How do you chill there for an hour? Right? Your energy, though, and I tell this to my to my friends all the time, needs to be kept safe. Because not everything you do deserves all your energy. Being on Instagram for an hour a day does not deserve your energy. Meta should at this point pay you. But let's be honest, that's not how the world works. But that's the point I'm making is that we all need to start becoming more comfortable with nothing. But it seems to be like, you know, a bad omen or like bad juju to do nothing. Like if someone catches me doing nothing, then... I'm a horrible human being. And I know because I think about this sometimes. 
I have 14 things to do. Instead of doing those 14 things, I just, I'm going to take an hour and watch like something on Netflix, eat, you know, some ice cream and not think about it. And then at the end, I'm like, oh, I should not have done that. I should have worked. No, not doing anything is as equally important to the work than the work itself. You can't work if you're burnt out. You can't work if you're overly tired. So do nothing sometimes. I am encouraging you all to do nothing. And I am encouraging you all to do nothing because I tell this to my students all the time. I, when, when, when possible, I give my students a couple of minutes free and I encourage them to take a nap. And I'm not saying this is possible all the time, but in an entire quarter, you can afford 10 minutes, Right? And I know that a ton of people are like, well, students are entitled to those 10 minutes. I'm not saying I won't give them knowledge for 10 minutes. I'm just saying that I'm also cognizant of the fact that sometimes they just need to rest. And if me not giving them the knowledge for 10 minutes means that they can take a minute to nap, then I did a good job as a profe, right? Like this morning, I'll tell you what happened today. I have I have 20 kids and they're wonderful people and I let them have creative um, projects because I personally believe that creativity is just as important to knowledge building and knowledge creating as it is for them to regurgitate data at me. And I'm totally against regurgitating data because I'm an art historian in training, which means that for the better part of 10 years, someone quizzed me on dates. At this point, I can tell you that there are massive spreadsheets in my computer because I still keep them. There's a lot of labor there where I laid out the entire Zung dynasty or pick a dynasty and that services me absolutely zero. Knowing the date of something is less important than knowing the something. And I also get that I'm a bad art historian and I should go to hell based on what I just said. But if my students can talk to me about the subject and if they can challenge the data and if they can understand the problems, that's more important to me than whether or not they know when NAFTA was signed. And mind you, I teach about migration, so capitalism is also imbued in this class. And I don't care. I'm not going to quiz them. What year was NAFTA signed? Not important. And I think this is something that we suffer from in the art world. Because we're constantly thinking about the stuff that we need to achieve. And right, similar to learning dates. You won't give yourself a break when you need to do something. And mindfully, not at the highest rate ranking echelons of the art world but when you're starting out when you're an emergent artist or when you're an immigrant artist 20 years in you're still going to take most projects because we don't know how to say no that's another thing that we need to rethink how to say no and I'm thinking about all of these things as of late because I am grateful to be surrounded by people who challenge me to think this so when I was on vacation, I was like approached by someone. Hey, let's zoom. And I was like, yes. And then they were like, wait, you're on, you're on vacation. Let's wait until you're done with your vacation to zoom. And also, 
um, some people emailed me like, we're so sorry to bother you during your vacation, but we need some information, right? The apology mindfully seemed very performative, but it was also very appropriate because it was them being cognizant of the fact that I am valuing my rest time overdoing. And that's important because rest is important. We just forget about it. And I've been thinking about that, not just because I'm a prof and I want my students to rest, because if they don't rest, then they're not turning in good finals. But also because I'm an artist, I'm an artist, I'm a curator, and I want my artists to rest because if they don't rest, they're making crappy artwork. But just as a human, right, in a capitalist society who has a very complicated relationship to resting. Now, I know that I out a lot of my issues in this podcast. I have a complicated relationship to labor. I have a complicated relationship to rest. I get it. But also, I was in a meeting a couple of months ago where a ton of people were saying super obvious things to me. And I was like, wow, no one had ever made that super a space for that super obvious thing this person just said to me. And I started thinking, well, there's a ton of stuff that's incredibly obvious to a bunch of people that we don't talk about. But then this is how trauma gets passed on intergenerationally, right? And immigrants, and I'm talking specifically about immigrants because I am an immigrant, have all kinds of issues because of assimilation, because of acculturation, because we're no longer in that place we call home where we feel safe. That we need to start rethinking. And I know because I need to start rethinking these things. And, you know, I'm a work in progress. So I'm rethinking of them now. And I'm doing it out loud. And I think there's power in listening to your environment. Because the people around you who keep you going, the people around me who keep me going, make absolutely certain to celebrate when I pause and make absolutely certain to encourage that I not only work all the time. And I think that's something we all need to do for each other in the art world, in the classroom, etc. I think we all need to, you know, take a minute, take a nap, make a minute for, you know, that thing that's going to make you happy, even if it's going to service no agenda. So when I got myself a second master's, I was like, I'm giving myself a gift, right? I did this. I have, I, I have to celebrate myself. And I was like, well, I'm going to buy something. And I was like, mm, I buy stuff all the time. That's not a gift. And I was like, I'll give myself some artwork. No, I buy artwork all year long. That's not a gift. And I'm like, I have to, I have to provide myself with something that moves beyond this capitalist agenda to spend money. Because also, I work for this money. So spending it to gift myself something. There's a conflict of interest, right? And so it took me a minute. But I figured out that the thing that I needed to give myself was a braid. Yes. I braid um, a portion of my hair on the side. On the right side of my hair. Um, and I'm not even going to tell you that I do it all the time. I was when I gifted myself a braid. And I do very often. But also, right? People make choices. So I, gave, I decided to give myself a braid for multiple reasons. 
on the one end, I wanted to carve time away from the capitalist agendas that be. If I spend three minutes a day playing with my hair, looking at myself, enjoying my culture, performing my culture, then it's three minutes a year over time. It came to something like three days. Um, however many minutes, right? Because I actually timed how long it took me to make a braid and then I averaged it. It came to about three days a year. And I was like, I'm giving myself three days a year to spend on nothing but me. And it's not money. I'm giving myself my time. I'm giving me my time back, right? Because those three days, I could just as easily be working. I could be Instagramming. I could be doing all the things that take up my time. Going to school writing my dissertation, whatever. I, I decided to carve out time for myself and give that to myself as a gift. Now, the reason why I landed on a braid is very simple. I'm a trainasticist. <laughs> yeah, I know this word like trips up a lot of people, but that means that I trained in the Mexica peoples before um, contact. And one of the things that always like stuck with me going back that far is that when you look at you know the codices there's all these depictions of women with different hairstyles and you can tell the woman's rank in society based on their style so um at a certain age you wear certain hairstyles when you get married there's certain hairstyles for married women when you're single there's certain hairstyles for single women and i find that compelling I find it very interesting that something so simple like your hair would not only signify beauty, but would also, right, explain to society at large something. And mindfully, I'm not saying that the Mexica people believed in monogamy, and I'm not saying that cisgenderness was the way to the world. I'm just saying that femme-presenting um, individuals in the Mexica, for the Mexica peoples before contact gave themselves different hairstyles at different portions of their life path to signal to different things. And I find that magical because we don't have stuff like that anymore in society. So when I was thinking about this gift that I wanted to give myself for my second master's, I thought, well, that's brilliant, right? My braid will signify my second master's to me, even if no one gets it. And also, I'm carving out time and giving myself time. So I'm removing the capitalist agenda for X amount of time a year and I'm making it so that I spend more time with myself and I'm not, you know, debt scrolling and I'm not working, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, okay, this is something I can do. And I did it for a ton of months straight every day. And then I traveled and, you know, resources. But I do it most days. Mindfully, not every day anymore. But that is how I constructed my nothingness, right? To remove labor and to remove capital and to remove the agenda of work into the nothingness, I will spend time doing my hair. And that's, you know, a silly way of thinking about it, maybe. And that's me potentially celebrating my traditions that's me potentially just being hilarious that's me you know that's me thinking through something and trying to see if i can work through it and it worked for a long long time 
And so as I'm telling you this, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because I'm I'm nowhere near where I need to decolonize, right? I'm I can't. Actually, when I was in Cholula, um, on my recent trip, um, Fede was the one who's like, "Girl, you need to decolonize your time," and I was like, "Whoa!" Like that sentence alone, right, mind boggled me because in Mexico, time works a little differently. We're uh, Mexican life. The Mexican lifestyle allows for more flexibility of enjoyment than the American lifestyle does. So out here, there's a a premium on efficiency. We need to be efficient to the max, which also goes into my relationship to labor and my relationship to work and why I wanted to escape capitalism. And I do. And I want to cancel, you know, most structures. But in Mexico, there's actually, there's like this horrendous running joke that people run on Mexican time when they're running late. It's not that it's not an efficiency it's joy so in mexico i'm a tourist right i at this point don't hold a position of work in mexico even if i hold a lot of meetings while i travel but when i'm there right and i did this um at the frida Kahlo museum we went to the frida Kahlo museum we checked out the exhibitions and then at the end i decided to just sit in the quad by you know the florecitas and the plantitas next to that pyramid and i was just sitting just nothingness i was just chilling and it dawned on me when i was there that even when i go to museums in the united states i'm efficient I walk in, I I know the room that I need to go to. I get to the exhibition I need to see. I walk out. If there's a book, I'll run into the shop. If there isn't, I won't. And, you know, and that's, there's a sense of efficiency even with joy. And I'm not bashing on it. Let's all be efficient. If I weren't efficient with my art viewing, I could not go to X number of openings uh, in a weekend. And it's part of my job, so I'm glad I'm efficient. But at the same time, joy is completely abstracted from it. Maybe because it's my job. And mindfully, this is where the art, you know, takes, takes me and runs with it. Because every so sporadically, and this is what I absolutely love about the art world, a piece of artwork will demand that I stop being efficient. And I love that with a passion because if the piece of artwork is so powerful that I need to stop to take it in or enjoy it or engage with it or think through it, then it totally did its job. And that doesn't happen to me a lot. It happens to me with really, like with friends, I'll go out of my way to make sure that I look at everything and I'll go out of my way to make sure that I think about what they're presenting me. With artwork that, you know, I research before I get to, it's the same way. I'll be mindful and I'll be intentional. But let us also not forget that a really good portion of the art world is white art that I see over and over and over again. For that, I'm very systematic. I walk in, I look at the thing, I walk out and I'm done. If it speaks to me, I'll take a picture. If it's an Instagram moment, you know, if my outfit is matching the painting, I'll take a selfie. Because why not? 
what on earth am I going to see the same painting for 20,000 times? And I'm not even talking about just white art, even though those are the most Instagrammable things. They are. Shiny gold art? Hello. But, and, you know, glitter? And I'm not bashing on glitter. You all know I love glitter. I've done exhibitions on glitter alone as a medium. But take, for instance, the Diego Rivera at Norton Simon. Dalcatraces, right? She lives at Norton. It's a beautiful painting. I've been to Norton more than 30 times in my life. And I love going to Norton. Norton Simon in Pasadena. Shout out to Norton Simon in Pasadena because their exhibition design team. Shaskis. Also, if you haven't been, it's way cheaper than the Huntington. The garden is just as pretty, even though it's much, much tinier. And the exhibitions are more compelling. Go there. And I'm not saying don't go to the Huntington. I'm just saying this one's cuter. But, right, they have um, they have a bunch of Picassos. They have a bunch of Van Goghs, et cetera, et cetera. But they have a Rivera. And it's, you know... One of the indigenous women selling flowers. So she's got flowers. She's kind of like kneeling. There's flowers in her back. And you see these flowers and they're so pretty. And I've seen this painting 30 times plus. And my college teacher, my college art professor, her name was Eugenia Sumnick, Sumnick, Sumnick Levins. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Um, she's from LAVC. Shout out to her because she made me an art historian. Before I met her, I was a woman who liked art. But she told me once that when you go to a museum, and I've said this before, you need to go visit your old friend and you need to go make a new one. And she was talking about artwork, right? So you go visit your old friend, you go see them. Because when you see a friend, you learn something new from your friend. Every t- This is why we see our friends all the time. Because we have new information from them. So when I go to Norton Simon, my old friend, I have a bunch of friends, mindfully the Bangos are my best friends, but the Rivera is one of my friends. I go, I see my friend, and I pop out, right? And then I go and make new friends, mindfully, and typically downstairs because they have this um, collection of Hindu art. And it's from all over the place. It's not just Hindu, but... In my mind, it's Hindu art because I took a Hindu art history class that had a lot of the sculptures that they have. And I'm not bashing on anyone and I'm not diminishing anyone. This isn't my field of study. I'm not an expert in this kind of art. I just really appreciate it. That's where I go make new friends. And, you know, you have the bodhisattvas and like the, you know, really awesome depictions of Vishnu doing really awesome things not an expert i just really like the stuff and you go you see the rivera and how many times can i go and see this rivera right but i will go i will go see the rivera because they also don't have a lot of mexican art norton simon if you're listening buy more mexican art um and i don't even mean from mexico there's a lot of people in the united states of mexican heritage that you would be well to invest in and so, and I'm not even just saying Mexican. Give me Central American. Give me Argentinian. Give me Chilean. Give me some Latinx. Brown art for the win. But in any case, you go, you see it. And there's something about seeing a piece that you've seen over and over again. Because there's a certain level of joy. 
But then there's something at the same time about seeing it again where you're just like, mm, thank you, next, right? And I have a love-hate relationship with Rivera because I'm a feminist and he was a macho and he was married to Frida and he cheated on her with his sister, her sister. And that just rubs me the wrong way. But I'm not saying he wasn't a great painter. I'm just saying as a human, I don't respect. And in the middle of going to see this painting and making this friend, it's a systematic approach. You go, you see your friend, you say hello, you walk out. It's kind of like, you know, when your mom's like, hey, your tia's coming, you have to say hello. And you're like, well, fine. It's kind of like that. And I personally go see the Rivera because I like the Alcatrazes. And I like this painting, even if I don't like it as much as I like most other stuff. Especially not the Van Goghs. And this has nothing to do with, you know, nationality or heritage or traditionality or my field of study. I should prefer the Rivera over the Van Gogh. But in reality, that tree, that Van Gogh tree in Norton Simon, chef's kiss. It's like the best painting they own. Go see it. It's great. Like the impasto of it all. You could see every leaf. Like it just, it's good. Even the crackalore is sexy. Yeah, I know. I just called cracks on paint sexy. Let me be. I'm a geek. I'm a nerdy geek this way. And I'm not saying don't go visit the Rivera. I'm definitely not saying don't, you know, miss out on this Van Gogh. But I'm saying there's a way to see art. There's a way to enjoy art. And then there's a way to enjoy life. And in this country, we forget how to have joy because we need to be so goddamn proficient. I know I shouldn't cuss. I'm not that religious. And I know that I started this podcast with saying that, you know, someone gave me a bendición and I loved it. I'm not that Catholic. But I appreciate a señora going out of her life path to try to protect my journey. Like, there's, there's some magic to that. And I think, to circle back to it all, I'm extremely grateful for what I do. And I'm extremely grateful for how I choose to live and be a professional. But mostly, I'm extremely grateful for the people that continuously allow me to thrive. And for those same people who stop me when I'm thriving too fast. Because I need naps, y'all. But ultimately, what I'm saying is we need to question how we don't want to have a relationship to serenity and how we don't want to celebrate nothingness because nothing is important too. But I'm certainly just, you know, advocating for us all to take a moment and to be grateful for one another and for the people in our lives that keep us going and for the art world in our life that makes us stop in our tracks even when we have a tight schedule and for brilliant artists all throughout creating these amazing things that allow us to speak for some really complicated realities. I'm teaching a class at UCLA right now entitled Immigration, Art Policy and Politics and I get 
to utilize artwork to explain to children and I and my students are not babies right like they're college educated honors brilliant scholars that immigration sucks and why immigration is so complicated and why policies are so disruptive and why politics are horrendous and I get to do that with art right my class goes from the work of Marcos Ramirez R. It goes into Salvador de la Torre. It moves on to Patrick Martinez. It taps on Willem Camargo. Um, I think I culminate with Claudia Cano. And I utilize the work of Omar Pimienta. But there's all of these great individuals in the planet who make it so that my job is hella easy, not just as a curator, but also as a profe. And all of these individuals inadvertently make it so that I question my own humanity and my life path as a professional, as a friend, as a human, as a partner, as a mentor, as an ancestor, right? I've, as of late, grown extremely cognizant of the fact that I am becoming my... The ancestors that I know sustain me, I need to become for the next generations. So I've been thinking a lot about what kind of ancestor I want to be. I know what kind of mentor I am. And I know what I need to tell my students and how I need to talk to my artists around me so that they can challenge and think through things. Because I think about these things a lot. But now that I'm more cognizant of the fact that people are seeing in me things that I didn't see in my mentors, then I can push that a step forward and ask myself what kind of ancestor I will be for the next generations. And I don't want to be an ancestor who's passed away. I want to kind of pregame that, right? I want to open those opportunities for people and I want to make space for people and I'm going to be the one in the trenches fighting for what I consider is right, which ultimately looks like advocating for my immigrant, migrant, and undoc artists and people because I also advocate for the ones who aren't artists. I just advocate way harder in the art world because this is where I work and live and teach. So... All of this to say that we need to rethink a lot of things that we're already doing with our time and our path. And we need to rethink how we utilize our time. And we need to be grateful for things that we rarely say thanks for. And we need to be extra cognizant of the fact that the generosity of individuals all around us enable us to thrive as a community because I refuse to believe that we're individualistic as a brown peoples mindfully in the United States we have to be a little bit but also I would be nowhere without all of y'all who would I be talking to in this podcast if you weren't listening yep I am fully cognizant of the fact that I could not do any of the stuff that I do without each and every one of you those of you who support me, those of you who challenge me, those of you who hate me, that also adds a certain fuel to the fire. I am not thankful for y'all. Rain that in. But I know you're out there. And I send you much love. Because I have to. 
I'm not going to be angry at you. I'm done being angry at anyone who dislikes me. Because that's energy I don't want to spend anymore. i rather spend my energy being extremely grateful of the people that sustain me and surround me than continue to be angry about the people who dislike me somehow. You don't all have to. I'm fairly cognizant and certain that a lot of people don't. I rub a lot of people the wrong way. And I'm okay with that. Not everyone has to be Team Erica. I am. And a ton of other people are. And that's really all I need, y'all. So with that, I conclude. Thank you to each and every single one who's in my team and on my side and on my corner and who's cheering me on and who's challenging me and who's speaking to me and who's working with me and all of you. Much love. Absolutely. Until next time.